Welcome to the International Bus Podcast, brought to you by Wordbee. I am Tanya Faulkner, and I have my co-host with me, Robert Rogi. Yep, that's me. Today on our show, we are talking to Leon Lead. He's the localization project manager at InAid. And actually, just a few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of talking to his colleague, Brock Hansen, on our software localization panel. So it's a pleasure to have you on our podcast as well. Leon, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. We were just uh, sort of getting started by talking a little bit about Innate. And um, so you're the localization manager there. Why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about uh, what Innate does and a little bit about your, your story there. Okay, yeah. So Innate develops construction project, project management software, kind of focused towards contractors, engineers, and owners to enable them to manage construction and capital projects. Kind of we, what makes us kind of unique is we have really deep roots in construction and capital projects. Innate was founded in the late 1980s, I think 18, 1989. And a few years ago, it was acquired by Kivit, which is one of North America's largest construction companies. And so we have a lot of really strong construction background being put into the development of our software. We started out with an estimating software, and I believe it was around May of 2017, um, Innate rolled out what is called Innate Projects, which is a web-based platform. And what's kind of great about this, it's kind of module informed. So we have around 10 different applications from daily plans, which is basically mobile worksheets, to how to manage your contracts. And companies can consume each different module as fits their needs. So yeah, that's kind of what we do. And as with the rollout of Project Suite, we're kind of moving into a global market in Europe and, and Latin America and Asia. And that's how localization is getting started. I think you mentioned that you haven't, like you've only started localization a few years ago. How, how did that go or how did you start that? Yeah, so my colleague Brock, you mentioned, and I kind of co-founded the localization. And it kind of really started with our kind of flagship software, what the company had been focused on for a decade or two. And we had a large international client that uh, purchased the software, and due to their their requirements, we needed to to start localization. At the time, we were both working as bilingual support, as like for the software. And as it turns out, I you know I think most people in the localization industry know first time around, you, you there's a lot of stuff to learn. And one of the things that we learned was we were using a software that was built in the late '80s. And so there was, you know, a lot of unexpected challenges that came out of that due to maybe not being internationalized properly. So him and I kind of jumped on the projects of something really excited about and kind of purchased, got, you know, got together with management and got our own cat tool because we were working with an LSP to meet the requirements for that project. But there was still more work to be done to kind of really, really streamline the localization processes and everything. It was just more work. I think this is the big story. Localization is always more work than you expect it to be. So coming out of that, we the company decided they need to take this kind of seriously. And so, yeah, so we created the department and kind of basically from scratch built the localization processes for the company for coming out of that software. And then with the rollout of Project Suite in the following year, kind of ramped up for that. So that's kind of how we got, that's how it kind of got started. It started with one client asking for it and then, yeah, moved from there. That's cool. Yeah, that's a really cool story. So, and you speak, uh, I guess you, you're bilingual then because you were doing the bilingual support? 
Yeah, so I was in this. I was there for Spanish and Portuguese because our client was across all of Latin America, and Brock yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, speaks Portuguese as well. And that was kind of our two languages that we started with. So it was very handy for for us to be able to read the translations that came back and be able to kind of work in in the user interface and and you know that kind of in context review mm-hmm. that you can do when you can read. So that kind of was facilitated by that. If it would have been you know a language that I don't speak, that would have been a whole different story. Right, right. Well, that's cool. I mean, you know, there's so few people in the U.S. that are bilingual. I mean, other than people that are coming from other countries. But I don't know. I can imagine this situation where it's like, well, who speaks another language? Oh, Leon and Brock. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and it was kind of, we had a few other people on our team at the point, at that point, that were Spanish speakers. But Brock and I had both had previous management experience, and we were both kind of itching at, you know, we're both itching to get on on like a project, you know, it's fun doing support. And so it kind of, I think it, our language paired with our background kind of helped us get on that. And then of course we would rely on, on some of them because you know, those are native speakers in those two languages. So we would rely on our teammates who were native speakers to like help us if, with any issues that came up. So it was a good time. Mm-hmm. And up to this day, it's still you and Brock managing all of that? Yes, we outsource because at the time with the beginning, we jumped in and did some translations because, you know, it was a lot of deadlines to meet. And then since then, we've had, you know, have all the translations reviewed by native speakers, you know, basically made sure it was it was 100 percent perfect. And translations are all done. We outsource them to our LSP now. And we basically just kind of focus on the processes and collaboration and and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. So why did you choose to work with an LSP rather than work directly with translators? Yeah, that's a good question and something we had talked about a lot because we did have, uh, particularly in Spanish, we had a few native speakers working in support. One of the reasons was whenever, you know, I know different companies that do this, when you rely, when someone's main job is, for example, bilingual support for bilingual customers and you're handing them translations on the side, you can't be guaranteed their full time because their priority is something else. So there was that problem. And then there was also just being bilingual isn't the same as being a trained translator, you know, those kinds of things. And then the scalability of of it was kind of our other issue was the ability to kind of ramp up, you know, we'd have a couple of training manuals come out and, and then there wouldn't be as much work for a couple of months. So it was really a lot to do with scalability and then getting access to trained translators, which is, you know, where we wanted to be as far as quality control and stuff. So, mm-hmm. How do you guarantee the quality and like, how do you make sure the translators you work with or the LSP works with really knows your language? Like do you provide some sort of manual or the translation memories and stuff like that? Because it's still, you know, construction, it's, there's some, some terms you need to know for that as well. Um, it's not something everyone knows probably. So how do you guarantee quality there? Yeah, and we have a massive glossary. It was actually kind of funny. We kind of built the glossary. We had this glossary built of terms uh, when we, we went with our current LSP. And their first answer was, this glossary is way too long. We've never seen a glossary this big. You're going to cut it down. And we're like, well, just look at it. And after they looked at it, they were like, no, this is good. You really do need all these terms because it's one of our challenges, right? We have so many unique terms. So one of the things that we do is, you know, you start with a glossary and you translate the glossary. And of course... And then we have a subject matter expert review that glossary that is bilingual in, which can be, you know, somewhat difficult to find sometimes. And then we start translating. And once it's in the application, 
we make sure that we have really good relationships with native language subject matter experts so that when they, a term that you saw on paper, because there's so many terms and there's so many facets to all of our application and different companies may call things different ways, even in the same language, we make sure we have a regular review process where any subject matter expert has a concern or wants to discuss a term. We facilitate that conversation with the translators to the subject matter experts. And if it's Spanish or Portuguese, you know, we might weigh in and we just constantly improve our terms when it's a new language. Sometimes it takes a year or more and we're still getting terms that are, that are being adjusted, but it's just, it's a longer process, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, we make sure that we hear back from subject matter experts and users in the field. And we have some clients that we're proud of feedback because a lot of our clients are, you know, large enterprise clients. So we'll have like third party sellers that might provide feedback. So it's that constant kind of feedback from multiple sources, I guess. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you manage all that feedback and all, all these communications across um, departments and providers and customers? And like, do you have a, a system that you use or... Is it just sort of ad hoc? So, and that's a great question. Uh, Right now, we're not doing, we're only doing, uh, so our main suite is only in two languages, which is great in the sense of being able to kind of get processes established before it gets out of control, which is Spanish and French. And yeah, it is a lot of ad hoc. I mean, that's a lot of my role is, you know, responding to those people and just making sure those the terminology gets updated and the translation memory gets updated. If it were to roll out to, you know, if we were doing 10 languages, I would have to be removed from the picture a little more. But the goal would be to have, we use, our LSP uses JIRA with us. And so we just have, you know, if everyone's added to one ticket, you can kind of just follow the conversation and everyone kind of gets to weigh in. But it's a time-consuming thing for sure. Mm-hmm. What do you think are your biggest challenges in the role of a localization project manager? I think here, one of the biggest things has been and and kind of continues to be is, is kind of getting localization implemented into the development processes all across the company without it being a major pain point for all other players. Because localization is so far downstream. And I was going to say use the term buy-in, but we have a buy-in. It's more about just getting it implemented so that it's actually feasible because it is, you know, it's a lot of work. So it's been a big, and that's what we've spent a lot of time on, I guess. And it's been a challenge is how can we automate our processes and sync into the development team's workflow? How do we report localization bugs in the most seamless way possible so that they get, uh, so we spend more time. So the dev team spend time, can spend time fixing them as opposed to kind of managing a ticket or something. So that's been kind of one of our big challenges, I think. Is there already some sort of insights on that or something that you found to be really useful? Yeah, I think we're doing, we're going in the right direction and I'm pretty happy with where we're at given how much time we've had so, I mean, one of our, and I know my colleague Brock touched on this on the webinar, but uh, basically we have a connector that sits between, you know, that monitors a repository. And when there's new content added, it creates projects automatically in our TMS. Those can then automatically be sent out for translation. And when those projects are closed, it, um, not to get too technical, but it basically creates request in our code repository for the developers to check the new translations back in. And so, you know, they're working in the environment that they spend all day and they don't have to come out and work in our TMS where we spend our time. 
It's basically letting them work on their home turf. And so all they do is get a request and they check those new files in, those are deployed, and then our QA team can, our linguistic QA team can see the new translations and kind of update from there. So that's been that's been a big a part of improving the process. And then related to that, you know, we've trained basically all of our QA linguistic quality testers to when, when they find localization related issues to raise bugs in the repository system that the regular QA team uses to track bugs. That way it's all in one system. And we kind of, you know, it takes time because it makes, we basically work in a lot of different softwares. We work in whatever every other team the company's working in and it puts a little more strain on us, but it allows all other teams to, we're trying to make localization as painless as possible for everyone else. So mm-hmm. I think those two have been kind of successful. They've definitely improved our ability to to get localization issues re- resolved quicker because it's in everyone's working in their native environment. You know, developers are working in in the same environment they were doing everything else in. Yeah. So is that are you talking about Jira there? That the LQA team is plugged into Jira, or is it? Or so our company uses Microsoft VSTS. Um, oh, okay. So Basically, and it's not that it's that complicated system, but it's just that's where a bug, you know, it's related. Everything is logged and tracked in there. So just training our team to create bugs there. So I'm talking about kind of functional bugs, obviously some sort of, if it's just a term, if it's an in-context error, Mm -hmm. that needs to then be addressed in the translation memory for the next project cycle. Mm -hmm. So I guess that means that also that you found that automation has been playing a very big role in your processes as well. Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine my life without it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't want to, at least. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I'm wondering, as a construction project management software, what is the content or what is the biggest types of content that you're translating? Is it mostly really the software itself? Yeah, what type of content are you translating? Yeah, that's a good question. So the most frequent projects are the software itself, the user interface, because the project suite is relatively new. There's a lot of new functionality being added every quarter. But that's not the bulk of the word count. The word count would has come mostly from massive training manuals, because as you can imagine, this, this software is not, it does such complex things, you definitely need a manual to kind of walk you through your you know case-by-case scenarios. So we've had massive training manuals and we've usually run those through in InDesign documents. And we are kind of transitioning now as a company to, which will be our next kind of big fun challenge um, in the next few months to kind of e-learning content. And we're just kind of getting started. So I'm not even certain what all that's going to look like, but it's going to involve a lot of, you know, exlif files that are extracted from e-learning, but we're going to be needing to do retaking videos and doing voice dubbing and all that stuff and kind of repackaging kind of online courses in another language. So that's going to be kind of moving away from more word count work to more like, you know, it's going to be t- more time-based. So that's going to be like the next kind of big thing that's coming, which we haven't really started yet. So I can't talk too much about it. But, mm. okay. but you already have the e-learning program in place. It's just localizing it. Yes. The English is going well. I think all yeah. the bugs, things are pretty much worked out. It's, it's kind of, you know, uh, establishing localization priority and mm-hmm. kind of getting scaled up for that because it's going to require, you know, some different skill sets and requires the localization team learning how to use 
whoever's doing that using that software as well because yeah you know the project can only be assembled in that e-learning tool so it's one more kind of software to learn right um, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why we just, you know, at WordBee, we just added the capability to uh, subtitle videos mm. in the TMS. And I think that's, I mean, video content is just exploding these days. It's crazy. Yeah, so that's going, it's going to be, I think our current plan, that's a good point. I mean, maybe we'll end up dubbing our videos instead of completely, or subtitling them instead of redubbing them. I'm not sure yet. We'll have to look into the cost of all that. But again, this is kind of, I feel like all of the blogs that I read, you know, this is why machine learning or machine translation is the big thing because we can now, we have so much more content than we used to. And that's kind of what our company is looking at too. We have, you know, we've gone from user interface and just manuals to this massive e-learning system, which is going to require a lot of work and kind of making that feasible cost-wise is, is kind of the next big challenge, I guess. Right, right. <laughs> What are the languages that you, I think Brock mentioned you're translating into four languages. Is the e-learning platform going to be translated into four as well? So we're actually, our main project is two. We're only doing two. And then we have, we manage, we do French and Spanish in our, our main suite. And we do Portuguese in, in our legacy. So I guess we're, right. he probably was thinking okay. of English when he mentioned four. Yeah. Uh, so, which makes it very manageable for now in the sense of, the quantity of languages and the ability for like some of our internal team to read it. So one of our big challenges is to, because, you know, we see it coming, there's going to be languages added in the next couple of years as, as the company is kind of rapidly expanding. So that's going to be the challenge of, of how you handle languages that your internal team doesn't, you don't have anyone internally that you, that can kind of proof anything for you. Hey, as you know, we like to keep things mostly non-commercial around here. And we like to just stick to interviewing the guests about fascinating subjects. But we would like to take a moment to mention a little bit about WordBee Translator. WordBee Translator is the translation management system developed by WordBee over the last 10 years. So we are celebrating 10 years now. It's all in one system, so you can manage projects. It also has linguistic tools. It has tools for finance, business analytics. And it's been around for 10 years, so it does pretty much anything you want. Before working for WordBee, I also used WordBee Translator. One of my favorite things about it was actually the invoicing because it made it really easy to manage supplier invoices, create them, and just not have to deal too much with the financial side of things. But other customers appreciate other things, like for example, it's a native cloud technology, so it's really collaborative. You know, you can keep track of what's going on in there at uh, any, any moment in your project. It's easy to set up different job assignment methods. You know, you can check your stats at any time. You can see how your project managers are performing. You can see how your translators are doing. And yeah, it does pretty much everything you want. It ends up fitting your organization like a glove, as we say. So that was just a word about Wordbee Translator. Now, without further ado, back to the podcast. You know, the journey that, that you've gone on in these last few years, I think there's a lot of software companies that are just about to embark on this same journey mm -hmm. where they have to localize and they're growing rapidly. And, and so what advice would you offer to the younger software company that's just now realizing they need to start localizing their software? Hmm. That's a big question. Well, you know, kind of one of the big things is if you're going to commit to doing it, commit to doing it right, which means internationalization on the software side, you know, getting everything out of 
I mean, it might sound basic, but I'm surprised sometimes at how often this can happen, hard-coded text. And then the thing that really kind of we've become a big fan of is pseudo translation, where you can, you know, a lot of cat tools provide, basically they'll take the, the English text and just add special characters. You can still read it, but it looks kind of spidery, but it tests for special characters and you can add an expansion algorithm. So your English becomes 130% longer. And we have our development teams as part of our, we're still working on implementing this, but the, the end goal is as part of the conditions of acceptance for any new feature, the QA team in you know, testing in English. Also, you know, we pick German or some language you're not using, insert the language pack, which is your pseudo translation and have them run through that and see what breaks. And it, it stops, it allows you to find a lot of surprising localization bugs up front. And we test, you know, you can test them all, you know, if you're doing uh, romance languages, expansion is similar. You can use one pseudo language to kind of to test for that kind of stuff. So I think in doing all that up front before you start translating, getting your, before you get your linguistic testers involved, saves them a lot of time. Because once you're testing with your linguistic testers and you're doing five languages, you have five teams testing instead of just one team kind of testing up front and maybe fixing 80% of those things that break when text expands. So that's kind of been, I think, our big lesson is kind of get some of those basics up front before you get everything else and before you get into multiple languages where time and money is just multiplied by every language. Hmm. You know, I know about software translation in the sense of like character limits and, and text expansion, but I didn't know that there was a text expansion algorithm tool thing. That's cool. Yeah, and not all, not all. So our TMS doesn't have it, unfortunately, but we have a, kind of an older just cat tool that we use and we kind of sync them together. It's a little extra step, but it really, for what we're doing and, you know, we're new, our, our software is new, right? We're still figuring out what kind of rules we need to write into our localization style guide for developers. So it's a, it's a really quick way for us to say, well, that breaks, you know, right up front. Uh, it's been right. it's been incredibly useful. And we kind of follow the same thing, right? We use our connector to pull into our TMS, and then it just comes back into the development team as a code root, as a shelf set, and they just check it in. So there's no emailing. It's just kind of automated, except on our end, we need to get the pseudo translation, but it's a few clicks. So it's a real, it's real easy for them to kind of implement, which has been nice. And it's more recept, they're more receptive to that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Sounds like an innovative thing. I mean, just one of those little things that you'd never expect would save you so much time, but then it does. Um, yeah, I was, I'm not even sure where we started. I mean, Brock and I both attended the Localization Project Institute's uh, Localization Project Management Certification. And I think it was someone brought it up there as well. But yeah, it's definitely something kind of unique to software, right? Yeah. Just as of your limitations. Well, when you started the localization project, basically at Innate, the software was there already, a big part of the software was there already. But now when there is new parts developed, do your developers take into account localization or has their processes changed at all? Yes. So we know that's still a work in progress, I guess, is the short answer. But, you know, some teams might do better than others, but... For example, the teams that are doing the best do exactly what I kind of mentioned in the sense that they don't, when they build a new feature, they don't mark it as complete until they've opened it up with that pseudo language and have checked to see if it kind of, it's a pretty rapid test, but it does catch a lot of large functional errors. And so we see a lot less of those issues coming down the line once we're jumping into our target languages. So that really helps a lot. 
uh, hard-coded text is pretty much a thing of the past at this point. You know, when a developer adds a new line, they're putting it into a resource file. Mm -hmm. um, so we're not seeing surprise English everywhere, which were two of our big initial problems. So, um, and you know, and some of it is, and then also I'm trying to think of specific examples, but just general understanding on developer side of what expectations are. That's been, that's still a work in progress. When you have, when does text truncate? What buttons, one of our latest discussions has been, if you have a button in English that says, okay, you know, it's a very small button in most languages, it's quite a bit longer. How long can that button expand to be? And so we're kind of updating our style guide as we go to kind of make sure that our the user experience and the target languages is kind of equal to that in English. And this is, it's still a work in progress given that it's that new, but that's a lot of kind of my job is to find things like that, you know, a QA test report something, and then I'll, I'll find a product manager and someone from UI UX and we'll discuss what our goal is. And then we'll update the style guide and kind of let everyone know, you know, which is all very time consuming, but it's getting those processes and style guides in place so that a year or two from now, everyone's being trained in the same way and all products are doing the same thing. We're all on the same page about expectations. So that's kind of where we're at now. It, we've gone past the initial hurdle, but we're kind of, you know, the small things, but small things are what makes software easy to use, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, hopefully sure. you get there in a year or two and the time doesn't double like it's often known to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's always been some unexpected challenges, but, uh, well, it wouldn't be fine otherwise, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose as you have external translators, but do you know if they're working with live previews or is that something that's not useful for you with software localization? Yeah, so that was actually a big factor in, and we were looking for TMS systems and then we, you know, we didn't really find the TMS that was in our price range that had a live preview. And I know that this was a few years ago, right? And so I know things have come further since then. That's something that's still, I'm very interested in because another thing I don't really mention as much, but we have a lot of, I mean, I guess this is why live preview exists. We have a lot of things like the word filter. When you see it, you don't know if it's a filter or if it's an action to filter. Mm -hmm. It's the same word, and in other languages, it's mostly not. And so we spend a fair amount of time fixing things like that. And again, with two languages, that effort isn't multiplied. But if we were doing 20, we would be doing that possibly in 20 languages. So it's something that I'm actually, we're actively still interested in and have kind of put it on hold for now. But it would be if it wasn't too difficult to set up, because right, it'd be when would be what would be the return on our investment in that? It would be something that could be really useful for all of our software. It would be it's like the magic thing that we're missing. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> okay. Yeah, I would think that live preview would be because um, you know WordBee has live preview mm -hmm. products too, and we could go over those later. But I, it seems to me like particularly with, with web-based software, it should be a lot easier to create a live preview than with with something that was on your desktop. And I wonder why no one has made this magic bullet. Uh, all the way, although the, you know, WordBee, we do have live preview, but ours is mostly working with like CMS systems and asset management systems mm -hmm. and, and not like with a, with a software like innate. Just off the top of your head, do you know why it's so hard for people to build live preview? No, cause it gets in, that's a little beyond my technical expertise, but I do it's know. It's out there, right? Yeah. Okay. What, what, when we looked at it, one was price, and I've seen a few since then, I think that I've you know, been meaning to follow up on, but it was a lot of work on taking kind of screenshots or stagnant, like a 
you would capture that URL for that page. But in our case, if you have to take a kind of capture of a URL for each page, we have, we're building so much new content every couple of months, that whole page is probably changing. And so the amount of work it would, and our, our applications are, are quite large and we have, you know, around 10. So to have a team that would kind of manually capture that with something that's constantly changing was not feasible at the time. That's how I understood how a lot of them uh, did it. And I'm, you know, might be missing something, but that was, it was just, it was too much of an initial effort for us at the time. It was just not feasible. Huh. And I don't know how other ones normally, I don't know if you want to talk about that at all, but I don't know how other ones normally, how they track which page you're on, if it's kind of dynamic and, and, and knows where you're at. Yeah. Geez. We're, we're starting to get beyond yeah. our technical <laughs> capabilities too. I mean, I, the, the word V1, basically it, it connects directly to a system. So what, what's the main one, Tanya, that, that Bbox does with the live preview, which was it Sitecore or. Oh, there are a couple. Yeah. There's um, a handful, right? Yeah. Sitecore, Sendshare, AM. Yeah. Well, any, anyways, so yeah, the live preview is like, you can be translating in there and then I think you can basically just click live preview and then it just boom pops up with the live preview of what, what you were translating on. But it, it does have to know the URL, mm-hmm. which is why it in- integrates like usually directly into those systems. Yeah. All the, de- and summary, I guess all the demos that I saw and we talked to their, their, their pitch was often around like web pages by that. I mean like a website and it looks, yeah. but when you're in, and yes, our, our, our applications are, are cloud-based, right? So that you're serving them up on a web page, but you're in an application. There's multiple actions on that web page. There's right-click options. There's drop-down. There's filters. There's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah on yeah. this, and it just became at that point when we looked at it, it just became too hard to. And those were often our problem, our problem yeah. stuff, right? It was those little action items. So yeah, yeah. it's something to be seen because I haven't I haven't heard of anyone. Yeah, doing it with with this level of that. So I don't know. Well, we'll we'll put you in touch with our technical team and see what they could do. But it, it is true that people in all kinds of areas of business, people get websites mixed up with applications, mm-hmm. and often they, you know, people offer solutions for. I mean, not just localization, but really anything like design, like, oh, we do, we design apps. But then when you look, they really design web pages. And I don't know, it's kind of interesting because app, I think, is people like to use the word, but like a a real app is just not the same as a a web page, you know? Yeah, I agree. And it just, it it adds a whole level on everything that you do, I think. So... So what are what other holy grails are there? So if live preview is a holy grail, like <laughs> do you have any other holy grails? That's a great question. No, I mean I think technology-wise, that's kind of one that causes a lot. Yeah, I didn't think of this question before. I'm sure I'll think of something like 30 minutes from now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I think no, I don't really have anything else. You know, there's a lot of challenges that we face. You know, you, you can think of theoretical things. It might not work for your company, but that's really just the one that, like, I would like to see happen. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be great. Right. Well, that makes it easy for the industry to focus on building. <laughs> so anyone who builds software, if you're listening. <laughs> Wait, we should, should not distribute that tip to others. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if our competitors are listening to this podcast, but if you are, we're already on top of it. You better catch up. <laughs> on a different note, is Agile Translation... Is that important to you or is it, is your software 
changing constantly and how do you deal with that? Yeah, so we're we're kind of we partly follow the agile process and that may be changing coming up where we move to, to something more iterative, which is gonna create a new challenge for us. But it's not every day. We we currently actually our sprints are on three-week cycles and we pull for new translations every three weeks, which is pretty slow for some people, but we're still following up with new features and things are changing. The real problem for us is keeping up on the language QA and the in-context review of all the new features. And that's something we're still, we haven't nailed down as to what is the most efficient way to do that. We're, we're, we're trying to find a way to just track new features to only test those or test it for in-context, um, not functionality. And right now what we do, we just have a dedicated person per language to not full-time, but you know, to test every release to fully test the application in each language. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm maybe sidetracking your question a little bit. But uh, I guess, so maybe to answer more directly, Agile, we have a connector, like I was mentioning the connector, we have it set up every three weeks because that seems to work the best with the way our cycles work. But if, our, if we move to more, which is the direction our company is going to more frequent updates, we will just basically speed up the cycle of that connector. And you know, if we need it to pull every two days, every three days, that's what we'll do. So it's basically configurable to whatever, how often, However often the development teams need their translations back, we can we can pretty much match that, I guess. Okay. Uh, yeah. Without us sending more emails. <laughs> What's <laughs> right. the name of the new methodology? Does it have a different name or? Yeah. So this this was just something that I heard recently. Someone talking about the company. I, I don't know about the methodology, but I think the idea is basically. So our company is currently we're still doing we're doing quarter releases, and I think the plan for them is really just to step that up and do you know maybe like monthly releases which would just kind of change our internal processes because we'd have less time to, we'd have less hardening time in the sense of you'd have to be, everything would have to be developed and tested, you know, within a month time frame as opposed to a quarter, you know, three months, if that makes sense. So I don't know mm. how that's going to affect and what they're going to call that internally. It's still going to follow a lot of similar patterns, but it's going to affect how much time we have. So, you know, we're going to have to be a lot more agile than we are now. And I don't have a plan for that yet. So <laughs> I'll right. need a little more details. Yeah, maybe hire some more LQAs or. <laughs> well, and the thing is, with our, I mean, a lot of the work usually that ends up falling on kind of project management with our, with the automation of, of that, we'll just have, you know, that. So that part's kind of taken care of. But we'll probably need uh, some more dedicated linguist team because, you know, you have, you have a lot more hours. You have the same amount of hours crunched into a short amount of time. So. But that's that's a pretty manageable challenge, I think. So, what do you look for then when you're thinking about hiring your your dedicated linguist team here? What would be the sort of criteria that you would have? Would it be knowledge of software, or would it be knowledge of construction, or would it be bilingual skills, or a combination of them all? Or yeah, you know, that's actually it's been one of our, our challenges. It's an interesting uh, kind of skill set because. You know, you need the you need the bilingualism. You don't necessarily have to be a native speaker because the translators are. You know, they're the ones that are that are getting all that 100% correct. But you need to be able to read it very well to be able to say, well, that's out of context. But you also need to be good at software, right? You need to be able to learn because we have this immense. You don't necessarily need to know construction because you can you can learn to navigate it. You can follow the user manuals. So yeah, it would be you know starting with bilingual, you know, which is the minimum requirement. But then Ideally, have some sort of 
translation experience. So you kind of uh, are kind of literary minded or you're, you're good with language and then also have technical experience, which can be really two hard things to match, right? Because people often kind of go in one direction or the other. But yeah, those are kind of the three big ones, right? If you don't like technology, or you don't like learning new features all the time, it can be a, a tough position. But yeah, we have a few great people. So it's just, you know, finding the right people. But it's a very unique set, I think. Hmm. Yeah, we struggle with some of that too. I think at Wordby, because Wordby is uh, also quite a technical product. Mm-hmm. I mean, Wordby has been around now for 10 years and it does, uh, I mean, for example, edge cases, it handles like so many different edge cases for whatever mm-hmm. kind of project you're trying to set up. And mm-hmm. and then we also need people that, um, you know, have other skills like I don't know, some people call them soft skills or whatever, but people in sales or marketing. And it, and it is hard to find people like Tanya. <laughs> <laughs> and yourself. Yeah, and no, but, it, but it's true. It's true. It's, it's not that easy to find people that, that are able to do both or capable of, of learning one or the other. Mm-hmm. It takes yeah, a lot definitely. of curiosity. Yeah, but it's definitely my, I, I'm a language guy from way back. That's always just kind of, that's my thing, right? Like studying languages, even if I don't, end up using them just to study them. But that's definitely some of my advice to like some of my younger friends or nieces and nephews is like, you know, learn a language or two and then learn some technology skills or some other stuff. And the pairing can be pretty great because language just opens up unexpected doors, right? Because I wouldn't be where I'm at without having having spoken, learned the languages that I did. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's a fun, it opens unexpected doors. So yeah. For sure. Did you study humanities at some point or... Or yeah, actually, I got basically my bachelor's and my master's in humanities. <laughs> nice, uh, nice. Didn't gain, enough, didn't gain enough the first time around, so I went back for more. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, I have yeah. my, my bachelor's is, is in literature and English. And, oh, wow. uh, and so we, here we have two humanities people on this <laughs> podcast having a pretty good conversation about software and very complicated <laughs> topics. So for people listening, don't be afraid to hire people that come from the humanities. And don't be afraid to study humanities if that's what you want to study. <laughs> yeah, that too. For for it. <laughs> cool. Well, I think it's probably a good note to finish up. Well, it was a good podcast. I think it. it, it, it I like your summary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyone who's into software localization, I'm sure will like to listen to it. And uh, uh, thanks for coming on, Leon. It's always a pleasure to talk with someone about their work when they really like their work. Yeah, thank you both for inviting me. This is I enjoyed this. Thanks for all the great questions and the conversation. Yeah.